Is Florida scaring away vital migrant labor? Broward County chooses a new school superintendent, but not clear backpacks. And Columbia sees messes and a miracle. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at the potential mass exodus of migrant workers from Florida as the state's new law targeting undocumented immigrants gets set to take effect. Could our economy take a hit? We'll also examine whether Broward County's school system, Florida's second largest, has finally put its recent troubles behind it with the selection of a new superintendent, Peter Licata. And we'll discuss the big news out of Columbia, including that remarkable story of child survival. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. On July 1st, a new Florida law takes effect to discourage undocumented immigrants from coming to this state. Known as SB 1718 and pushed by Governor Ron DeSantis, the measure makes it a felony in some cases to transport undocumented migrants into Florida. It requires businesses employing 25 workers or more to verify their immigration status. It prohibits issuing undocumented migrants' state or local ID, and it requires hospitals that receive Medicaid to ask patients if they're in the U.S. legally. Undocumented migrants make up 6% of Florida's workforce, but a much larger share of the state's agricultural workers. In fact, many experts warn Florida's agriculture depends on undocumented labor doing the backbreaking field jobs that citizens here will not do. A big question is whether the new immigration law is scaring even documented workers out of Florida. And if so, can vital sectors like agriculture survive that? What are your thoughts about a potential migrant worker exodus from Florida? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is WLRN Palm Beach County reporter Wilkin Brutus. He produced a great report for us this week on the migrant worker exodus that's already started in Lake Worth's Guatemalan community. Wilkin, how are you? Hey, Tim. All is well. Great. I want to start with some audio that makes it clear that even some politicians who supported this bill are already expressing panic about how it could affect the agricultural labor pool in Florida. This is state representative and farmer Rick Roth, a Republican from Palm Beach County, speaking to Latino evangelical leaders last week. I'm a farmer, and the farmers are mad as hell. We are losing employees. They're already starting to move to Georgia and other states. Roth then takes a strange turn and tries to assure his audience that this law may not be all that serious enforcement-wise. This is more of a political bill than it is policy. It does give more police state powers going forward to deal with immigration, but still... This is mainly a political bill. Roth did not respond to WLRN's request for comment, but he also said the new law is really just meant to, quote, scare people more than anything else. 
Wilkin, there's a lot to unpack there in Roth's comments, but are you seeing that kind of employer panic in your reporting too? Uh, yes, Tim. Certainly a lot to uh, to uh, to impact to unpack. Uh, it's worth noting that there are immigrants in Palm Beach County who employ other immigrants right. uh, <laughs> in restaurants, landscaping, construction. So the anxiety surrounding the lack of clear answers as to how this law will affect employment is increasing. Uh, Representative Roth said he advocated for the law to only affect uh, businesses with 50. Uh, 25 or more. Well, well, he advocated for 50 or more. Oh, he advocated, right, through. okay, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and so he expects random audits of employers who have 25 employees or more. But small businesses, uh, small business owners are still unsure mm-hmm. about how they can keep and attract new employees. And and you mentioned that, that what Roth was getting at, too, was that he feels there's going to be sort of like a grace period of some sort after, Jan- after July 1st. Yeah, he's unsure as to when the law will actually be enforced. He assumes it's going to be enforced in 2024 to allow folks to get used to everything and that, and that folks who mm-hmm. uh, have been here prior will be grandfathered in. And so majority of the fear surrounding this law is how the law will be enforced. Right. And and I should point out, he was speaking to Latino evangelical leaders in large part because they are one of the biggest critics of this law because they're concerned about their undocumented Latino worker flock. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and, and when you consider it, there is some irony there. Uh, I've spoke to folks who say, look, they're evangelical Christians where immigrant groups are just as religious. Um, and, and have contributed to the tax base, are contributing to local businesses, specifically in Lake Worth, around Palm Beach County. And so there's confusion as to, hey, look, you're defining us by our ability to do the types of work that you don't want to do, right. um, but yet you're making this law a bit more punitive. And in your reporting this week, you found that the Catholic Church is also a big, uh, is also very worried, I should say, about this law. Uh, In your report this week uh, suggests, in fact, that at least in Palm County, Palm Beach County, employers have reason to worry about this. We're already seeing migrant workers from the large Guatemalan community there leaving and 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 you talk to a lot of these 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 migrant workers at the Guatemala Maya Center right. run run in large part by catholic clerics yeah yeah father frank um right. who, who's pretty well known and you know of him as well mm-hmm. uh many have fled already tim yeah. and still leaving i attended an emergency an emergency town hall meeting at the Guatemala Maya Center Lake Worth Beach it's a nonprofit that provides various social services for immigrants, usually Spanish-speaking Guatemalans and indigenous groups right. who speak various Mayan languages. Like Quiche, et cetera, yeah, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and Pocti and Mam, mm-hmm. all these other different uh, Mayan languages. I mean, it was an intense emotional gathering of people. Um, I was the only journalist there. And so clinic director Dana Torres described people leaving Lake Worth Beach as a mass exit. Uh, especially early on. A lot of people didn't wait for the law to be clarified. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the past, many of these individuals and families fled Guatemala to escape violence and political instability. And now they were feeling displaced again. Right. And, not, and not just that kind of instability, but a lot of them have, are, are climate change refugees. Oh, absolutely. Uh, from, from Guatemala. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're feeling displaced for various reasons, uh, mm-hmm. both climate, climate and uh, political. And so they were making their own political and, anim, uh, and economic decisions. What did the migrant workers you spoke with there say are the biggest fears about what could happen to them under this new law? So it's important to know when you have these 
spontaneous town hall type meetings, you're going to have some form of legal aid. And so uh, the Guatemala Maya Center held a Zoom call with an attorney uh, from Florida's American Civil Liberties Union. They're known as ACLU. Right. And, and so racial profiling, um, immigrants and U.S. citizens voiced their concern that their regular day to day life could be interrupted by police uh, if they're potentially profiled. Um, and they asked if they could film any potential encounter with police. And because of language barriers, Tim, uh, people discussed strategies on how to de-escalate situations. Uh, which was very fascinating. Um, driver's licenses. Uh, the state law invalidates out-of-state licenses. It's going to be quite difficult for people to get IDs, and that's obviously mm-hmm. going to affect job seeking. All right. And, and, and also, I believe, coming forward to get medical care is one of the biggest concerns, right? I mean, you, 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 you're worried because if you go into an emergency room mm-hmm. or even a clinic, you're, you're going to get asked about your immigration status. Oh, absolutely. Uh, for hospitals that accept Medicaid, they're not required to send data to the state that doesn't expose U.S. citizens, documented and undocumented people. But the issue is persuading legal and undocumented immigrants about the safety of their personal data. Uh, I spoke to Laura Callis. Uh, she runs the Caridad Center. It's a mm-hmm. free clinic in Boynton Beach, Boynton Beach right. which is mm-hmm. about 20 minutes um, uh, south of Lake Worth Beach. Mm-hmm. For anyone who lives below the poverty level, those are the folks that she serves. And, and she says she's seeing a lot of hesitation from immigrants, especially pregnant women who need prenatal care. Uh, if the law is meant to strike fear in the hearts of immigrants, Tim, as Roth has said, yeah. then it's actually doing just that. And even documented workers express these concerns, too, right? They're afraid they'll just be lumped in with undocumented migrants as well. Oh, absolutely. You you have individuals who have children that attend school. That Guatemala Maya Center is a, new lo- is a newer location. It's a bigger and newer location that's located directly across from Lake Worth High School. So you have first and second generation families who feel the pressure because one or two people in their family feel targeted. The ripple effects of the policy extend beyond mere employment. Yeah. Now, in his comments last week, State Representative Roth also argued that the new law really won't affect undocumented workers hired here before July 1st. Now, is that true? So that's a tough one, right? You have the letter of the law and you have the spirit of the law. That could be the case based on the letter of the law. But Representative Roth says the law will audit employers through the state's E-Verify system and that the law is meant to deter future, future undocumented immigrants okay. from coming. So that word is key. Yeah. That word okay. is very key. But he isn't clear about in what other ways the law could be enforced. Mm-hmm. He said enforcement may not even begin until 2024. And so that that unresolved uh, uncertainty is crushing for uh, for advocates and folks in in the community. Right. Um, advocates say it, it creates long lasting fear within the community, which will have a long term impact on whether people decide to stay or flee. Hmm. I'm Tim Paget. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the potential exodus of migrant workers from Florida. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Wilkin, one of the other effects of this law is that it's making people even more confused about what what really constitutes a, quote, undocumented worker. What is some of the big disinformation that's floating around out there right now? Yeah, so that's a two-pronged question. Uh, Let's tackle the first one. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, disinformation pushes the fear that immigrants will get deported right after the law takes effect July 1st. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a very important thing to tackle that advocates have told me mm-hmm. that, look, the law takes effect July 1st, but it doesn't mean the world is going to end. Yeah. Um, that you do have that sort of grace period. But the uncertainty is what does that grace period looks like if you're trying to feed your children? Um, it doesn't really assuage all of your fears. Um, and that's because enforcement of a law looks like it's very unclear for immigrants. The second thing is that um, there are individuals in immigrant communities who have some documents as they wait for other documents to be approved. So the term uh-huh. undocumented point, yeah. is a, a, a various type of term. It's often a broad umbrella term used to describe people who don't have all of the documents at once. So you could have your Social Security, you could be approved for Medicaid, but perhaps you didn't get your asylum papers mm-hmm. or you don't have a work permit. It doesn't mean you're completely undocumented. It, it means that you have some of your documents. So we, we want to be careful with using the term. I use it often because mm-hmm. I know it's an, right. an umbrella term. But if we get into the weeds of things, uh, it's far more complicated than right. that. As a result, how are migrant aid nonprofits like the Guatemalan Maya Center in Lake Worth that we've been talking about, how are they trying to convince those workers then to stay? I think one way they're trying to convince the workers to stay is to be conscious about how the law works in the United States. Uh, folks come from their own countries and assume the law may work the way in which it works in their own country. Yeah. And if you speak a different language, if you aren't getting into proper translation of, of, of the way in which the law works, uh, you're obviously going to take things into your own hands. Um, and so one way that they're assuaging some of the fears is to say, hey, look, you can still get medical care. You can still take advantage of our services. But if you do decide to leave, Dana Torres from the Guatemala Maya Center told me this, we will help you financially. They, they're not naive to assume that folks in the immigrant community are just going to go ahead and take the risk. Because the law is so unclear in terms of enforcement, mm-hmm. there are people who are already deciding to leave. The issue is how do they leave when, let's say, a mother has children who were born in the United States? How, how do you how do you make that decision yeah. if you have a mixed status household where you're the breadwinner and now family members have to decide where you're, where the next income is going to come from? Lots of dilemmas there. What did the folks in the Guatemalan community in Lake Worth tell you about what they feel is a better policy solution to the immigration problem than a law like this is? One major solution that I've heard is that advocates and immigrants have told me this, that they would like to see or they would have liked to see Governor DeSantis and the legislature expedite the path to citizenship prior to July 1st. Mm -hmm. If you say you care about the jobs and the economy, put in a mechanism that protects workers who are already contributing to the agriculture, which is one of the biggest industries in Florida. If, If you say you care about... Um, job growth, the economy, put in a path that would expedite uh, legal status for folks who are already here. And by July 1st, this law presumably would affect future folks who are trying to come here. Uh, But there is no mechanism to to help protect folks who are here. And that's what immigrants are feeling. And and, and so what about you? I mean, there's there's obviously a, a, a nationwide movement to to highlight some of the exploitative uh, aspects of the agriculture industry, um, the, con- the construction yeah. sector. Uh, wh- what have you been seeing during your report? Well, I, I think, especially when I talk to farmers like Rick Roth here in Florida, one of the big things they always bring up is, you know, rather than pursue laws like this, states like Florida and Texas, et cetera, should be pushing harder for national 
immigration reform to help states like Florida. And one of the big things they always point out is what are, what are known as the H-2A visas. Those are the temporary seasonal work visas um, that, that, that you give to migrant workers so that they can come in, go back home, come back in, go back home to do the kind of necessary agricultural work here. They, they don't understand why immigration reform on the national level, at the congressional level, can't be pursued um, to to give more of these kinds of you know legal H-2A visas, temporary seasonal worker visas, to more populations like the Guatemalans. For so long, they were only given to Mexicans, for example, right, right. and not to Central Americans who needed them even more, like Guatemalans, Hondurans, Salvadorans, etc. So I think a lot of farmers in Florida are saying, why don't we start lobbying Congress mm to do more of that kind of thing. And then we wouldn't need uh, laws like this. But, but uh, you know, that politically, it's, it, it's tough. And that's a great point. Uh, mm -hmm. Representative Roth echoed a similar sentiment. He had hoped for, or continues to hope for, a national E-Verify system, which he believes would have would have deterred immigrants in Florida from leaving the state. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm sure he's advocating that for other reasons. Right. But the larger concern here, Wilkin, that, that, is that laws like this are really less about immigration reform than about demonizing immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants. Um, one advocate at the Guatemalan Maya Center in Lake Worth that you interviewed made the point that she can't understand why politicians like Ron DeSantis are out to portray the undocumented as violent criminals like drug cartel members, as she said. In just the minute that we have left here, um, you know, is, yeah. is that also a, a big sentiment you're hearing? Oh, it's absolutely massive. And she was an indigenous Mayan woman. Uh, uh, absolutely. We're talking about people who've who've in the past fled violence and political instability from their home country. And because enforcement of this particular law is so unclear, immigrants feel that they have no choice but to interpret the law in several ways, especially since the immigrants feel that lawmakers didn't make enough effort Tim, to engage their communities prior to enacting the law, yeah. which would have assuaged uh, a lot of fears and reduced the amount of, you know, defining people as such. All right. Wilkin Brutus is WLRN's Palm Beach County reporter. Thanks as always, Wilkin. Thank you, Tim. Stay hydrated. I will. <laughs> Still to come, Broward County picks a new school superintendent. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. In the past year, the Broward County Public School Board has been through a number of chaotic upheavals. Among them, the removal of several of its members on the recommendation of a state grand jury, the firing, rehiring, and refiring of former Superintendent Vicki Cartwright, and most recently, a controversy over legally questionable closed-door meetings to decide if students should be required to carry clear backpacks in order to improve school safety. This week, the Broward School Board, which presides over Florida's second-largest school system and the country's sixth-largest, hoped to restore some tranquility. On Tuesday, it voted not to require the widely unpopular clear backpacks in schools. And on Thursday, it finally selected a superintendent to replace Cartwright. He's Peter Licata, who's currently an assistant superintendent in the Palm Beach County school system. 
Are the Broward County Schools troubles over now? Let us know your thoughts. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is WLRN's Broward County reporter, Gerard Albert III. Also with us is Broward County School Board member, Dr. Alan Zeman. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Hi, Tim. Hello, Tim. Gerard, the big news here, obviously, is that the Broward School Board finally found a new superintendent. What should we know about Peter Licata? And can he turn this school system around after the rough, rough patch it's been through? Well, he's a local. Um, he right. was born in Broward, and he's worked just north of Broward for the past almost three decades. Um, you know, he came up as a teacher, then assistant principal, principal, and then into the administration. And he's built himself, um, his track record as transformational. They sent him uh, where they need to see improvement, and he's done the job. That was his pitch to school board members. He will come here and be transformative and do the job. Um, you know, he also was one of the only finalists that came in with a 90 day plan with, with checked mark, check markable boxes of here's what I'm going to do. I've done it before. Here's what I can do. Um, and I'm no psychic, uh, to tell whether <laughs> he's going to do those things uh -huh. or he can, you know, he can be the, the transformational leader, but he got a, uh, a majority of the votes from school board members, yeah. and uh, yeah, hopefully that, he does. That kind of assertiveness matters. <laughs> to, to that point, Dr. Zeman, the board voted for Peter Licata pretty convincingly, as, as Gerard just pointed out. Seven to two was the vote. He's a Broward native. He grew up in Pom Pompano Beach, right? And, and, and he beat out a candidate from Louisiana and one from Detroit. Why did you decide Licata was the guy? Uh, Tim, and first, there were three really great candidates that, that uh, wanted to come to Broward, wanted to be our uh, superintendent leader. And I do want to tell you that all three of them uh, could have done the job well. Louis Solano from Detroit is a distinguished uh, educator, lots of experience in Miami-Dade. Nito Sar uh, Cito Narcisse from East Baton Rouge has worked in all of the, not all, but most of the uh, big urban districts like Broward and came with some incredible recommendations. So uh, those those two candidates were excellent as well. I think Peter Licata is the guy though. Uh, we needed not just a great leader and all three of them were great leaders, but we needed a great leader that had a plan to move us to the next level. And Peter Licata presented a very, very clear, almost like a business case analysis of how he would move Broward from a B district to an A district in his first year. Uh, and that plan was very compelling to us. And I think that's what put him uh, uh, ahead of the other two candidates. I want to play a clip from Licata's press conference after his selection yesterday because he doesn't mince words about the dysfunction he sees in the Broward schools. One of the things we talked about is, is the um, disjointed efforts on a lot of the uh, issues here, and that has to stop. Dr. Zeman, was Licata's candor about the system's, as he called it, disjointed efforts, a big reason the board chose him in the end? It is. It is a great attribute of a leader to speak truth to power, and he clearly did that. The bigger issue, though, is I think all the school board members believe that there are fundamental things we need to fix at the district in Broward County, that the solutions are before us, the failings that we've had are clear, 
Uh, what's missing is action to remediate and mitigate those problems so that we can be the great school district that Broward County has been in the past. Gerard, what in your assessment are some of the biggest problems Lakata has to tackle now as he takes over Broward's public schools and those promise and those those problems that uh, Dr. Zeman makes reference to? Right. Well, over this past week, uh, they've gotten hundreds of questions, and um, you know you kind of get to see where the community priority lays where the priorities of principals lay and then also of school board members. But I think three big ones are declining enrollment in the public schools, uh, obviously student achievement, getting the B grade to an A grade for the district. Mm -hmm. Um, And something that Lakata had the biggest strength in, in my opinion, because he's worked in Florida for so long, is maneuvering the political landscape that is now changing for schools and education which is, which is code for feud with governor DeSantis. <laughs> work around things feud um you know it seems like he he knew how to work within the system that is maybe not the most favorable for some educators all right dr zeman let me put that same question to you what are you and the board hoping mr lakata will prioritize in order to put the broward system's troubles behind it Well, uh, clearly the execution of the smart bond, uh, while it was horrific for the first uh, half a dozen years, uh, got better, but has now fallen on uh, uh, hard times again. We're behind schedule, over cost, under delivering, uh, and that's contemporaneous assessment, not not an assessment uh, that you would call historical. Dr. Zeman, could you, could you could you just uh, remind our, our listeners what exactly that bond uh, uh, setup was? So uh, 13 years ago, we passed a bond in Broward County to uh, spend seven years uh, and $800 million to make dramatic improvements in the facilities at Broward County Schools. We run 240 schools. It's the sixth largest district, lots of buildings. Our net asset value of our buildings is $9 billion. And so we asked for just under $1 billion, $800 million. We've added $600 million of capital funding to that. So now it's a $1.4 billion program, but it is going to go down in history as one of the worst executed uh, bonds in the United States, not even in Florida. And unfortunately, uh, we're now at 500 plus uh, change orders that are long overdue. We have time impact assessments that are way behind. Um, and we've lost confidence in our program manager to execute that that project. Right. Um, so, so that is a historic failing, but uh, we've got to correct it a second time uh, mm-hmm. so we can win back the trust. We're, we're gonna finish it by October, 2025. Uh, one way or another, but I'd like to end strong rather than end with a whimper. No, that uh, obviously a huge challenge, right? I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the long-awaited pick of a new superintendent and other Broward schools issues. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Gerard, one of the biggest controversies recently was the issue of whether students should be required to carry only clear see-through backpacks as a way of improving school security. That's obviously a key issue in the wake of the terrible school shooting massacre in Parkland five years ago. And last month, the school board voted in favor of requiring clear backpacks, but it then backed off after a backlash from both students and parents. Why was the idea so widely unpopular in the end? 
Yeah, widely unpopular is a, is a good way to put it. I mean, you look at a photo from the meeting where uh, they had a town hall about the clear backpacks. Yeah. There was barely an empty seat. You look at the meeting uh, where the board interviewed the school board candidates, there was maybe three people in those seats. <laughs> uh, obviously, yeah. different times of day, but um, it mattered a lot to people. And, and, and parents uh, complained about the lack of privacy that students would have. They complained about the lack of effectiveness that it would have also that, you know, mm-hmm. if, if somebody wanted to bring a weapon, they could wrap it in a T-shirt or a jacket or hide it behind a book. Um, there were Those were the kind of the two big issues. Uh, the smaller ones were things like, um, you know, when you take away the chance to get somebody's backpack at a store, you, you take away their self-expression and with lunch boxes, there was right. a lack of insulation, which is kind of these problems that come up that you don't think about right. um, all the time. Now, Dr. Seaman, after a town hall meeting on the matter this past week, the school board voted in the end not to require clear backpacks, but I know you worry that school systems in Florida are still vulnerable because of the state's gun laws especially the new measure allowing people to carry concealed weapons without a permit. How will the board now try to address that concern? Well, that concern is uh, ever present. The, the, instead of moving toward reasonable gun safety laws, uh, we move the other way to allow people without permits, without training, without knowledge of even how to use a weapon uh, to be able to conceal that weapon. Uh, and while you're not allowed to bring it within a thousand feet of a school, if it's concealed, how will we know? And if you live next to a school, right on the border of a school, you're legally allowed to have a concealed weapon at your home. So there are real clear present risks uh, with schools. Uh, we do everything that we can. Uh, we're putting together a great meeting this summer between uh, Sheriff Tony, our great sheriff, and uh, chiefs of police to talk to our uh, director of the special investigative unit, our law enforcement team, to talk how to do it even better. But the clear backpacks were an attempt right. to remind people that, uh, unfortunately, bad guys are targeting schools all too often. And if you see something, say something. Right. If you uh, uh, have a chance to contribute to the safety and security but, of the school, please do so. But, Dr. Zeman, will, will issues like improved metal detector infrastructure, for example, be part of that meeting? Uh, the sort of thing we've seen, for example, uh, to the north of you in Palm Beach County pursued. Um, it is. Uh, I can tell you, though, that spending more money on intelligence gathering, uh, spending more money on running down threats that we know about, uh, making sure that we train for more than one scenario rather than to train for the same scenario every month in every school. Yeah. Uh, there are opportunities to really do things better that don't involve metal detectors. And we have to take a systems approach to this to make sure we optimize safety and security of our students. Also, Dr. Zeman, the, the other controversy involving the clear backpacks was that the board's meetings about the issue were conducted behind closed doors possibly violating Florida's open meetings laws. I I know the board's general counsel has drafted new rules about this sort of thing. Has the board resolved that question then to your mind? You know, it has. And and just to let you know, you know, there there are human failings. You you could get into a meeting that is uh, rightfully discussing safety and security, which we don't want the public to know about all of our camera locations and our intelligence gathering capabilities and where we put assets and the like. Uh, and sometimes the conversation trips over that line. That, that's a human failing. Uh, we call okay. it out very quickly as board members. Uh, and just because a comment or two went over that line doesn't mean 
that the school board members and our general counsel and superintendent don't don't police those uh, closed door meetings. We okay. Okay. we do everything uh, in uh, open okay. session and are very, very serious about transparency with the public. But Gerard, we have to remind people that the Broward school system is not out of the controversy woods yet. State investigators are investigating some recent financial actions by interim school superintendent Erlene Smiley. Yeah, it's the same group that um, conducted the grand jury right. investigation a few years ago. Um, so far, all we know is that the investigation is kind of centered around the school board using funds um, that were supposed to go towards um, air conditioning repairs and using them for raises in staff. So some, some possible misappropriation then perhaps. Mm. But just as important, she also made some other moves that Lakata is going to have to deal with now, right? Right. Um, just this week, she moved some people around, um, and that included promotions, non-renewals of contracts, and certain raises. Um, that means Lakata is going to come in kind of with um, his team being prearranged for him. Uh, but it's something he said that he trusts uh, Superintendent Smiley with completely, and he's going to go in there and hit the ground running. Dr. Zeman, I, I want to close things here in, in just the minute or so that we have left by asking you, what do you think was the big factor that brought about the problems in the Broward school system of, of late? What, was it the pandemic, for example, as many claim? And how can this be avoided now in the future? To be honest with you, Tim uh, uh, and Gerard, uh, the problems that Broward has were self-created uh, by a lack of leadership. Uh, for too long, uh, being okay was okay. Uh, for too long, there were direct appointments to every job, which gave people incentives to cozy up to the superintendent rather than just do their job well. Uh, there became a culture of uh, moral decay, where uh, a certain truth would be told to school board members to get to act to get to an action that somebody wanted, rather than to trust the school board to do what was right. Right present the pros and cons of different options. So this is all a failure of leadership. Uh, and I really love my colleagues that we have on the board now. I'm loving Peter Licata. I, I can't wait to work with him to okay. uh, turn this around quickly. But our failures were all self-induced due to a lack of leadership. Okay, well, thanks very much for that candid assessment. Dr. Alan Zeman is a member of the Broward County Public School Board. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Gentlemen, thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim and Gerard. Still to come. A lot's going on in Columbia, including a miracle. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Tim Paget, Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. A lot of important things are happening in Colombia right now. For starters, the government of Gustavo Petro, Colombia's first ever leftist president, is in big turmoil thanks to a bizarre scandal involving two of his closest advisors. On the plus side, Petro just secured a ceasefire with Colombia's last remaining guerrilla group, the ELN. But the biggest news from Colombia was last weekend's discovery of four indigenous children, ages 13 to 1, 
the only survivors of a small plane crash. They were still alive after spending 40 days in the jungle on their own. It put Colombia's most abused and neglected population, the indigenous, in the sort of heroic spotlight it has long deserved. Have you been following these stories from Colombia? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. All of this is a reminder that Colombians are South Florida's third largest expat community. And so we wanted to talk about it with Marco Frieri, a respected Colombian political analyst here in Miami, who joins me in the studio. Marco, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and great to be here with you, Tim. As a Colombian, Marco, how did you react to the astonishing story of these four children surviving on their own under those jungle circumstances? Well, as a Colombian, I mean, we've been uh, very emotional for the last months, giving all the news that we get out of our country. And for once, giving, getting this positive news was great. Uh, I think it lasted too short, uh, the feeling of positivism that we have as Colombians giving that news, because there's always something happening in Colombia. But it was great. We were weeks waiting to see what happened with these yeah. children. And 40 days. 40 days. Yeah. And in, yeah. I think a couple of weeks ago, we had a notification from the president and, and his team that they actually found them, which ended up being not true at the moment. But thank God. I think, thank God, they were able to, to find these children. And I think it's pretty astonishing how they survived, how the older yeah. siblings cared for the younger ones. I mean, because they knew the secrets of exactly. La Selva, the jungle. Exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, people don't know Colombia is it's a lot of a jungle, and surviving that is quite astonishing, especially at that age. So it was amazing, great to have them in health, and this will provide a great story and I think motivation for the Colombian people. Yeah, no, that 13-year-old is is, amazing. Is, is, is is absolutely a hero. But I also wanted to ask, mm -hmm. you, how do you think Colombians in South Florida responded? I, I ask this because Colombian expats here are mostly from cities yeah. like Bogota, Medellin, and Cali. Yeah. And they have a complicated relationship with rural Colombia, where these kids and their families are from. Do Colombians here, you think, feel a connection with this community, perhaps even more now? I think given the last couple of months of situation, these are indigenous people and we, yeah. there's, there has been certain conflicts uh, with these groups in Colombia and the opposition, uh, right. the current left. Because when Colombians mm. here think of rural Colombia, they too often think of the civil war, Correct. the 50 year long civil war Correct. and leftist guerrillas and all the things that just yeah, Columbia's bring back bad memories. Colombia essentially is two countries. It's the rural and the cities. So there's a huge disconnect between these two populations. Uh, but overall, I think it's it, when we see this news, it, it, it provides some source of, source of happiness for our, for our diaspora here, our community, especially because at the end of the day, it's also work of our military forces. And as, I think as yeah. everybody knows, Colombians are really proud of their military and being able to find these kids was it was uh, I think a source of pride that we have with but them. But do you think it also helps that diaspora, that sort of urban-oriented mm -hmm. diaspora here, feel a better connection, a closer connection with that rural Colombia, that other country that yeah. you were just talking? Yeah, I about. think it connects them because it gives them it, it showcases the difference between the countries that we have these these groups that are fairly disconnected from the city people, but it provided I think a source of connection of the realities that right. the Colombia has with the rural. People. Yeah, I mean, to that point, how much does this amazing story help to boost the profile mm -hmm. of Colombia's indigenous and, and their needs? 
compared to other countries in Latin America, I think our indigenous groups are not as well known. You have the Aztecas, the right. Incas. Ours, we have a diversity, huge diversity. Right. Of, the, the Yanomami, nobody, Yan, everybody knows the exactly. Yanomami from Venezuela, but you're right. I, nobody I could knows. not name a, an indigenous group in Colombia. You're but right. We have so many, and as divided as we are in regions, it, we also divide, we have that same division in indigenous groups. So I think showcases the world that we do have, that culture, those groups that need to be highlighted because at the end of the day, th- that's our history, those are our people. And I think... If, if we as Colombians uh, take advantage of this situation to showcase that we also have that heritage, those people that have profound impact in our, in our development as a country, it will be great to showcase that to the world. On a more political note mm-hmm. on, that, on that level, could that help to focus more effort on critical reforms that are part of the country's post-Civil War mm-hmm. peace agreement to develop rural Colombia. I mean, the neglect of that part of the country was one of the big causes Correct. of the civil war in the first place, right? Yeah, uh, completely. The, uh, the conflict in Colombia historically is that divided between the rural and the city. And the people are completely disconnected. I think this will highlight that group of people that have been disconnected to, to, to the city. Um, we do need peace in Colombia. The FARC process was at the end, successful. But the we FARC also, being the largest, the largest group, Marxist guerrilla group that, that, that the, the government signed a peace agreement correct. with about seven years ago. Yeah, okay. about seven years. Mm-hmm. But now we have the ELN, we have the, the residual groups of the paramilitary forces of the FARC. Colombia has a significant problem with these groups. And at the end of the day, they are an expression of the country that has been forgotten, the countryside. Yep. And people need to face this. I hope this situation highlights this divide that still exists. But uh, in my opinion, it Right now, the government is trying to solve too many problems at the same time. And while this ceasefire with the ELN is positive, it, it, we, it beg, I beg to differ is, do they really want peace? Because that's, at the end of the day, yeah. the situation in Colombia is how much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I do want to get to that. Yeah. I, just, I just wanted to ask you one last question sure. about the, 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 the children, though. There is now a, a battle for custody <laughs> for these children going on. Does that cast a bit of a cloud over this otherwise in, inspiring story? Yes, uh, I think it that tends to happen in Colombia when we have a happy story. Something tries to bring it down. It's part of our uh, ongoing national drama. But uh, I mean, I just hope these children have uh, can go back to a normal life and yeah. and again be a vessel of their people with the rest of the country that we need to connect with. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about all the big news out of Columbia with a South Florida Columbia. <laughs> Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Marco, mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to the issue of those post-Civil War reforms mm-hmm. that we were just talking about, because unfortunately, it's looking like President Gustavo Petro will now have a lot of trouble carrying those reforms out, largely because of the political scandal that's now plaguing his government. I mean, it's a bizarre drama involving his chief of staff and another close advisor. Can you help explain it to us? Oh, this this is going to take me a while, but yes, it's it's a significant (laughs) drama, like a telenovela, but it... So his chief of staff, essentially, this young woman, 20 years, 28 years old, had a nanny. Right. it seems that they, in her apartment, the chief of staff apartment, they lost some cash. the The value is, some people say it's about three thousand dollars or four thousand. Now there's right. a there's a claim and that she suspected it, the nanny exactly. of stealing it. Yeah, and they did this um, test. I, for, I have the translation. Uh, oh, I forgot the lie detector. Test. Yeah, the lie detector she test made it, her take a lie detector test. Which it seems like it's an abuse of power on right. her side. Yeah, um, and now there's another link that they wiretapped her as well. 
and they wiretapped her as making it seem that she's part of a uh, an illegal ar- armed group in Colombia, yeah. which is brings us back to the early of this of the of two thousands when the government wiretapped the opposition. Right. So again, Petro is known for being against wiretapping his enemies. He was right. essentially wiretapped. So now it seems like his government is doing the same for this little issue. But this little issue now exploded. Time. Because, because another close advisor, a gentleman named Beradenti, right? Very correct. The, uh, the ambassador. Is also, is also involved in correct. this. Correct. Yeah. Which was a past a employer of this nanny. So this this <laughs> connection is, yeah. following it is, is extremely. But the word you used earlier, telenovela, right, is, 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 is very mm. apt here. Now, as, as I mentioned at the at outset, Petro is Colombia's first leftist mm-hmm. president. He was, in fact, a leftist guerrilla during the Civil correct. War. And he's very unpopular with Colombian expats here. Do you think they're pretty happy about his current political misfortune? So all this this chaos uh, currently happening with, I say, telenovela, is making him uh, lose popularity in the country. Uh, his coalition is is factorizing in the government, so he won't be able to pass most of the reforms he wants. Yeah, right. And that for the Colombian community in South Florida, which is obviously against him in a in the majority of the sense, are happy because they see that all those reforms he wanted to do will not pass. Mm-hmm. They, they feel more confident today than maybe uh, months ago when he was elected, when they thought they were, he was going to change the whole face of the country. They feel that the reforms he's pursuing are too left-wing. Too in, left, in many, yeah. Correct, yes. They right. feel mm-hmm. too left-wing and too much at the same time. Yeah. Changing too much the system of the country, land reform, Pension reform, healthcare reform, healthcare was reform, big which one, is a yeah. big one, and and that admittedly was kind of an overreach on his part, right? Yes, because essentially he's the he's he wants to go back to what we had in in the early nineties and the eighties, which was uh, a healthcare system run by the government. We have yeah. something that works way better now. Yeah, it obviously needs some some fixes, as everything you right. need to fix with time, but. So he's done a lot to create his yeah. own problems. Um, and yet, mm-hmm. at, going back to what we were talking about earlier, Petro did have a success this past week. He secured a ceasefire with the last remaining holdout guerrilla group in Colombia, the ELN, or National Liberation Army. Could this help to reboot his political fortunes? I think it's one of the positive things happening to him during this week. Um, but again, the community here, specifically here, but I think general Colombians also there, are hesitant on this deal because it does not stop the ELN from doing certain things, extortion, uh, kidnapping. Uh, So, yes, it's it's a ceasefire, but what are we giving them and what are they giving us? And again, historically, the ELN has not proven to Colombia that they want a peace process. So Mm -hmm. with the FARC people, we're hesitant. With the ELN, it's even worse. So Hmm. as Colombians, I think we all hope we can achieve that peace that we talk about, that we've been talking about for so long. But we also want the other group to show uh, that they want to achieve it. There's, they're not just playing with us to buy up time to get to arm themselves or get more resources. Why is the ELN being such a hard um, uh, um, holdout when it comes to making peace with the government, where, whereas you know the, the, this huge guerrilla group, the FARC, you know, seven years ago said, yeah, we're ready for peace. Why is the ELN being so stubborn about this? Uh, ideologic, ideologically, they're really different than the FARC, and also they're, they're fractured. There's little cells around the country that seem to not answer to what we think is the head of the whole group. A FARC was more centralized, controlled. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest problem with the ELN. Some will say they want a peace deal, but some just want to continue to do what they've been doing for decades. 
Well, in the last minute we have here, mm. Marco, finally, I, I wanted to point out that Colombians aren't the only expat group here watching Petro's performance. Venezuelans Correct. are too. Is there still a chance that Petro could help broker an agreement to bring democratic elections back to neighboring Venezuela? I think that is the goal, and that's what President Petro wants. He wants his foreign policy to be that, to achieve that, uh, that democratic change in Venezuela. But for now, and most Colombians feel, more Venezuelans feel that he's playing more to help Maduro legitimize right, his... Right, because Maduro was a leftist the, just, just like exactly. him. Exactly. And the same as Lula has been doing is they seem to be playing more to one side than, than in the middle to actually help the country in a whole. Right. Uh, very good mm -hmm. points, all. I wish we could talk more about all of this, but when? Marco Ferrieri is a Colombian political analyst here in Miami. Marco, many thanks. Oh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Finally on the roundup, remember on the show last month we asked if climate change may be making South Florida hotter and hotter? Well, record heat this week in Key Largo. Heat advisories stretching from Palm Beach County to Miami-Dade. Real feel heat indexes reaching 108 degrees. And the calendar says summer doesn't even start until next week. But it could be worse. And it is in Puerto Rico, where a lot of South Floridians' friends and relatives are suffering heat indexes as high as 125 degrees. Our WLRN intern, Ariana Otero, spoke with her aunt, Kareli Aviles, in Guaynabo, Puerto Rico, who said it's even too hot for kids there to enjoy summer camp. The summer camps had, had to take extra precautions for for a child to be correctly hydrated and not exposed in the sun uh, for extended periods of time. Aviles also said Puerto Rico's heat crisis has made its electricity crisis even worse. Our electricity infrastructure is not as strong. So since everybody needs to use more electricity to stay cool, our electricity infrastructure suffers. And in some cases, we experience, how do you say, blackouts because of the power capacity. Well, fortunately for us here, Florida Power and Light just announced it's reducing electricity rates this summer. That'll do it for the Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The Vice President of Radio and Show's Technical Supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias. Merci. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.